Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again. Joined as usual by the Center for Lit crew. My beautiful wife, Missy. Hello. My daughter, Megan. Hi. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Welcome, you guys. We're down a member. Ian is not with us today. We will try and carry on in his absence. And today, our goal is to discuss, to turn our attention, I should say, to the all-time standard for English eloquence, by which I mean the works of William Shakespeare, of course. It's probably not surprising that we here at Center for Lit are Shakespeare fans to a man. But you might think we declare our love for the bard out of a sense of obligation. After all, this is Center for Lit, Center for Literature, and we speak English. (laughs) And Shakespeare is, of course, synonymous with English literature. And that's really the reason I wanted to, to talk about Shakespeare today. I mean, acting on the idea that an unexamined assumption might be a bad one, I thought we could drag our opinions about Shakespeare and the experiences, the reading experiences, which led to those opinions out into the open, as it were, and hold them up to the light of discussion. You know, what do we love about the Bard? Why do we keep coming back to his work over and over again? How has it shaped our reading lives and our thinking lives? Maybe as a result of a discussion like this, our love for Shakespeare will be the deeper. And maybe we'll get folks into the mood for examining their own literary assumptions too. So, you know, either way, Here goes. Shakespeare, what do you think, guys? Shall we do it? Let's start this way. In a word, what literary excellence do you love Shakespeare for the most? I mean, you could make a list of the reasons Shakespeare is great, and there would be linguistic ones and philosophical ones and all kinds of theological ones. What literary excellence do you admire most about Shakespeare? Okay, I can can go on this one. Okay, go ahead. Um, From my point of view... I think Shakespeare's exploration of human nature is what I find most compelling. So a philosophical excellence. Yes, his philosophical excellence. I mean, no one's going to argue with the fact that um, his use of the language was profoundly beautiful. I think we all agree about that. But um, once you get in there and you start reading the things that he's written Mm -hmm. so beautifully, you find that his understanding of human nature is really unparalleled. Mm. And it, continues to resonate today because mm. human nature just hasn't changed much. Right. You know, we are what we are, what we have ever been. Mm-hmm. And he has such um, a beautiful way of exposing the nature of man and his plight on the earth, um, looking at his grandeur and his misery mm-hmm. simultaneously, mm-hmm. right? Holding them up to the light so that we can see what manner of creature man is. And He's so compassionate uh. as he does so. He doesn't mince any words. He doesn't, he doesn't downplay the sin that's present. And he himself would call it sin because he comes from a very Christian tradition. Um, but simultaneously, he sees the, the beauty in man. In humanity. In humanity. He, he 
lays it all out for us, whether, whether you're reading his tragedies or his comedies. I mean, in his tragedies, he, I, I think of Macbeth. Um, I, I think of Julius Caesar, Brutus in Julius Caesar and Cassius, um, his King Lear and his companion Gloucester. All of these guys, um, Hamlet and Laertes, I mean, you've got the best of the best um, falling prey to these fatal flaws that mm-hmm. they have and discovering what it means to be human, mm. discovering that they they are finite. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean um, that their lives will end, that they're mortal, but that they cannot see, they cannot see far enough mm-hmm. to accomplish all that they would accomplish to be all that they would be, to achieve, right? Do you think this, are you, do all the characters you just mentioned, Macbeth and Hamlet and Lear and, I don't remember who else, you, and, and Brutus and Cassius, yes. do they all have this in common? They do. They all have the same um, blindness that prevents them from seeing far enough. And the result is that they fall prey to their own natures, to their own sins uh, to one degree or another. And that particular um, weakness really resonates in the human experience. Mm -hmm. And I I was just to shore that up just a little bit, the, I think that the comedies bear that out as well. In the tragedies, he shows us um, the, the fall of these men. And in the comedies, he shows that same nature without, um, without it leading to absolute disaster. He softens his, you know, the treatment of it and demonstrates that although man is this, this limited, this limited blind, blind, relatively speaking yes, creature. Yes. There is joy and humor mm. and love and forgiveness and redemption. So you would kind of say the, the literary excellence that you, that you love about Shakespeare, if I can paraphrase, is that he tells the same story over and over and over again that has to do with this view of human nature. Um, I wouldn't say he tells the same story, but they're variations on a theme. Uh, interesting. You know, at, at their heart, well, they all contain the same major elements. I think that's why I get my hackles up when people talk about trying to find virtuous characters in Shakespeare like looking for the examples to hold up to children like this character is someone you should follow because the characters that i admire the most are often the ones who mess up the most Mm. right oh yeah right i mean i think about immediately angelo and measure for measure who is chosen by the prince who's in charge and is going away for a while to take over and in his absence basically behaves like a a tyrant Mm -hmm. and his own lust gets the better of him because he doesn't anticipate struggling with lust. He's, he's a good man. He has been a good man. And the result, the result is both funny and disastrous and and tragic, tragic, you know, Shakespeare has such a beautiful way of, of laying it all out there so we can see and laughing with us about our baser natures Mm. and bringing us to the point of realizing that yes, this is what we are, but it doesn't um, disqualify us mm-hmm. from participation in the human experience. Actually, it qualifies us. Emily, would you say something similar? And I mean, your comment about the your favorite Shakespeare characters being, you know, less than than models. Yeah, and and I would add that I think that his wordplay is actually really connected to those things that he holds dear, those philosophies, because 
his words are so multifaceted. They're they're so deep. They mean so many things. Mm. Uh, in the same way that that human beings are multifaceted, and and he kind of has this respect for both. They can be at the same time, you know, angels and and animals. You know, ah, that the, it's both. That and is his interesting. Birthday reflects that. Emily, who is your favorite Shakespeare character in this connection? Oh. Well, actually, that's pretty easy. It would be Prince Howell. From Henry V or Henry IV? Or... Just all of them. Is it because of this element that you're talking about? Yeah, he's he's by no means... I know a lot of people think that he's a super virtuous character, but he isn't. Um, he's <laughs> uh, actually pretty messed up. And at the same time, he's so relatable. He's just a struggling guy trying to carry this weight that he inherited in life. So for those of us who are not as quite as familiar with the Henry, the, the Henry plays, Hal is the, is the titular character in Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth, the crown prince of England, who in the Henry the fourth plays basically spends his life in a bar in dissolute youth. Correct. Right. And at the very end, right before it's the, let's see, it would be the second part of Henry the fourth. He, is about to take the throne and he confesses that that's really all that he wants to do with his life. Mm. And he, he recognizes that as a weakness in himself um, mm. and immediately turns into the tryhard mm. <laughs> in Henry the fifth and suffers because of it, because he's trying to live up to this just enormous standard and without giving himself any grace. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that that, Shakespeare paints that picture better than anyone else, maybe. You mean just of someone overwhelmed with the... The need for virtue. Okay, but um, the lack of it at the, the same time. But the lack of it, yeah. The need to be all that, like Hal feels. Try hard. You know, try hard, <laughs> yeah. as you put it. Um, he he highlights that need for virtue, but demands it, that, the, that the law really do. And basically what he's holding up is the law okay. and its demands and demonstrating the way men feel it. And their inability to achieve it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he demonstrates the way that it essentially kills them, mm-hmm. kills them in their tracks because they cannot actually achieve that kind of virtue. So, so this would be characters that realize the need for virtue. But I think of Macbeth in this in this context of this discussion, who doesn't seem to me to be a character. Obviously, Macbeth, the usurper in the Scottish play, right? Who who murders his way onto the throne of Scotland and then continues to commit murder after murder in order to, to keep his uneasy throne. He's not striving for virtue in the same way, but would, would he as a protagonist still partake of this same human nature that you guys are talking about? I I think so. I think so. Absolutely. Because, you know, if you remember in the initial stages of that play, um, he's, he's basically heralded as the best of the best. He's just That's true. done noble acts, brave acts, um, fighting against a usurper to the throne, mm-hmm. upholding King Duncan's rule mm-hmm. and all of that sort of thing. And he's basically loaded with honors as he comes back. So he's held up to the, the viewer or the, the reader the right? audience, from the right. start from t- to the audience as um, like the, the pinnacle of what a loyal brave subject ought to be. Mm -hmm. And then we watch him fall prey to this ambition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Prideful ambition that or leaps itself, right? This is his issue. And 
it does him in. It completely does him in. I, I have, um, I have it in front of me right now. I'm looking at the last scene in the last act when the jig is up mm-hmm. and Burnham Wood has come to Dunsinane. Has come to Dunsinane, right? yeah. Um, the the uh, the king's true heir is marching on the castle to put Macbeth down. Right. And he realizes after he finds that his wife is dead by her own hand and everything has gone amiss. And he says this, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that little speech of his, those few words, I think sum up the moment of revelation. Mm -hmm. When you see yourself, you see that all of your best attempts have been foiled, Mm -hmm. and that you are naked and exposed that you've had your moment on the stage and that your limitations, your sin nature have all conspired against you and overwhelmed you, Mm -hmm. right? And the candle has gone out. That's it. And he says, what is it for? What is it for? You know, I think that's very, um, I I feel very sympathetic to it. Yes. And and I think that it's not without hope at the end of the play. I think that he does come to some self-realization that could be some redemption for him. Mm-hmm. And when I suggest that to students, they're just outraged <laughs> because here he is, he's done these horrible things. He doesn't deserve any kind of, you know, sympathy on our Grace part or, or sympathy. Compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think Shakespeare gives it to him. And ultimately I think, it's a blessing for us that what we do signifies nothing. Mm. Um, And it's just so hard for students to wrap their heads around that. Me too. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that might be one of the purposes actually in Shakespeare's mind of, of that moment of revelation at the end of the play, when we see that there might be some hope offered to that character, Mm. Shakespeare wants us to wonder at that. That's one of his goals. I, one of the things I love about Shakespeare is that, He's first and foremost, he's a teacher. He's taking the role of a teacher. Really? He says in Cymbeline, there's a line, um, says the one character, I can't remember who it was exactly who said it, but he said, the action of our lives is like it. And he's, he's talking about the play itself, hmm. the events that have just gone on in this, in this play. And Shakespeare does that often. He makes the action of this play like our lives and offers it to us as if to say, seek and find, mm. look at yourself in this play. What mm-hmm. do you see? And the result is twofold always. It's woe and wonder mm. together. Mm-hmm. It causes you pain to see yourself, to see how you're like that tragic character with that tragic flaw, mm-hmm. to see your need in him, but also wonder at the possibility for grace and mercy. Mm. The yeah. last mm-hmm. play, the last play that Shakespeare wrote, what was the last play that Shakespeare wrote? I think, was it Cymbeline or was it The Tempest? I thought it was The Tempest. The, the Tempest, Tempest is the last. I mean, there's some evidence that he might have participated in a couple more after okay. that. But well, one of the last lines that Shakespeare ever wrote ends with the word peace, 
which a professor in college pointed out to me, which I thought was absolutely wonderful because that's what Shakespeare offers you at the end. You've got woe and wonder, and in the end, you come to peace. Wow. Or that's what you should. What, what the experience of reading a Shakespeare play should give you is woe and wonder, and in the end, peace with your state. Which I, I just really thought was lovely. True. Yeah. I wonder if that's what's being alluded to at the end of all those tragedies where the tragic hero is borne out in a funeral possession, uh, procession mm-hmm. and somebody like the, the young Norwegian Fortinbras at the end of Hamlet says, here was a true soldier. Or the, the yes. those standing over the body of Brutus and Julius Caesar said, the greatest Roman of them all. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an allusion to that. After there is this shattering self-realization, yes. there's peace. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely The Tempest true. is actually the play that made me fall in love with Shakespeare in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really powerful. Uh, the same professor that you're talking about, Megan, yeah. um, showed to me that in the first act, um, it says it, the actual Tempest, there's a storm uh, and the ship is being broken to bits. And um, one of the characters says, we split, we split, we split. Mm. And at the time I came to the Tempest, I felt like I was splitting. Like Mm. I was struggling with so many different things and I was just trying to grow up and life was hard. And I just felt like I was being split into a bunch of different pieces. But the very next scene, one of the characters says, be collected. Um, Mm. And I think Mm. that that's his project. He's he's collecting all of our little pieces and bringing us peace, like you said. And it's just really powerful. Mm. And sometimes that happens through, like you said, um, death. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of King Lear and oh, what I think that that may be my very favorite Shakespearean play. The man who could not see, right? Lear himself. Lear himself. He could not see. He says it of himself at the end in, in Act 5, mine eyes are not the best. I'll tell you straight. Yeah, a little understatement there. He could not see. And the result of him acting the way that he does towards his family, towards his nation in general is death, Mm -hmm. death um, to everyone, (laughs) you know, and in the end, when he finally sees um, and what he sees is what his own hand has wrought, Mm -hmm. all of this death, all of this destruction uh, as he holds his dear daughter in death, his heart breaks and he dies. And his advisor, Kent, says, break heart, I prithee break. Vex not his ghost, oh, let him pass. He hates him much that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. Mm. Peace. Peace. Peace mm. to his soul. And, you know, simultaneously in the same play, you, you've got Lear on the one hand, who really doesn't come to self-knowledge until it's quite too late. It's way too late. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got Gloucester, um, who is so much like Lear, but who sees himself in a moment in which, ironically, he loses his eyes. He's blinded. And in, in the blinding, he comes to self-sight. He's, he's approached by an old man as he's wandering blind in the wilderness. And he says, I have no way and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw. Mm. I stumbled when I saw. Mm. And he, he takes to heart the things that he's come to know as a result of the tragedy that befalls him. And instead of blame shifting like Lear does, he owns it. And the result for him is reconciliation with his son mm-hmm. that he has um, had so much trouble with, that he is so wronged. And I think Shakespeare does such a beautiful job of demonstrating reconciliation 
as the result of self-knowledge, self-sight, um, owning your sin, bringing those things to pass. And a kind of peace results kind of from peace. that as well. Yeah, a kind of peace, a kind of hope. Yeah. So he doesn't blink at the fact that man is responsible for so much pain, suffering, sin. All of it comes at his own hand and at his own blindness. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, there is hope and the possibility for reconciliation and redemption. Mm -hmm. And he demonstrates that just as beautifully. Wow. Wow, that's quite well, a. And Go ahead, Emily. I feel like one of the things. Well, one of the things that often gets confused about Shakespeare is that they think that he's saying that the responsibility for that reconciliation is also with us. But mm -hmm. I don't see that in his oh, works. I, I think he's. It's our responsibility is all of the horrible destruction that takes place, mm -hmm. and yet it is not our responsibility to fix it. Yeah, well, you see that in the Tempest as well. There's a there's a question shot throughout that whole play, and it's um, who can work the peace of the present. That's the question of that play, and in the end, Prospero, who is actually the teacher or the artist figure in that play, he himself begs for help and mm. begs for someone else besides him to work the peace of the present. And he actually, I have it here in front of me. It's a beautiful line. He says, "Unless I be relieved by prayer." which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. So he's actually the character in that play who was playing God for the most part. All of the other characters, he's controlling all of them and setting up their little tiny destinies on his island mm. through magic. You got to read the play. It's a great one. Yeah. But in the end, he, the teacher himself, is needy and he's not actually responsible for working peace in anyone he needs it just as much uh, as anyone. So right. he it, drowns his book. Yeah, exactly. He drowns his book. He gives up all his magic and he's human just like everyone else mm -hmm. and needs someone greater than him to work peace. And is the greater named or is it a, the fact that there must be a greater, that there's a need for a greater, that is the weight of Shakespeare's suggestion there? He mentions prayer in that particular quote. My, again, that professor in college who was so formative in my understanding of Shakespeare argued that Shakespeare himself was pushing the reader on towards God mm -hmm. and that that was very intentional, but it wasn't named in that particular scene. God wasn't named. Well, and there's just so much Christological imagery scattered throughout the plays that oh, it's yeah. hard. It'd be hard to miss it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're talking about late 16th, early 17th century English uh, literature, which is going to be shot through with the images and symbols of Christianity almost uh, certainly, right? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. You know, I was thinking about the, um, a, a theme that's related to the ones, the one that you guys have been kind of going on for a few minutes, this theme of, of human frailty and weakness leading to destruction, or as Missy said, leading to overwhelm the character, but there being a reconciliation that comes from embracing that. And in the end that there is some sort of peace, there's this related theme that I always, um, I guess the word is latch onto, or I always notice as it mm -hmm. goes by me when I'm reading Shakespeare. And that is the theme of a character trying to overreach his normal station or his, mm -hmm. or his rightful station. Like Macbeth. Like Macbeth or like Brutus in, in mm -hmm. Julius Caesar trying to become great. And, and it seems to me that not only is he always trying to become great, but that he's trying to usurp the place of God mm. in the universe. Yeah. Right. Macbeth, the putter up and 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 putter down of kings, mm -hmm. or or Brutus, essentially the same thing. 
Brutus, the the decider, the arbiter of who shall wear the crown, or in Cassius' words, who shall bear the palm alone. Hmm. And Brutus takes that into his own hands, and a destruction ensues that is very similar to the destruction that you guys are talking about with just being overwhelmed by your humanness and by your need Mm -hmm. for sight or an ability to control the future. Right? And that seems to be a theme that runs throughout Shakespeare's plays as well. In the tragedies as well as the comedies, I think, this idea that there is a, there's a hierarchy in the universe, that there's a seat that God sits on, mm. and there are seats that men sit on, and a lot of the strife in the world is created by people getting in the wrong chair. Right. Yeah. Do you guys see that too? Is that is that a, is as ubiquitous yeah. a theme as I think it is? Oh, I definitely see it. And there's a there's an echo an echo throughout all of the plays. The the playwright is urging us to see further, see better, and it's as if he's he's urging us to self-revelation of that right there that we're in the wrong seat. We're not able to fulfill all the things that the person who sits in that seat needs to. Mm-hmm. And so he's urging us to to realize, see further, see better. You're just not enough to mm-hmm. sit in that seat. Mm-hmm. There's someone else. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of resolution in a Shakespeare play comes about in sort of an ancient style, in, mm. in the style of the ancient epics, when people are restored to their rightful seats yeah. in the universe, right? When things sort of match up again, mm-hmm. like they were uh, intended to well, originally. Sort of. But sometimes they don't. There's always, almost in every single play there is that feeling that there's this resolution, but there's always something that's a little off. Like in Macbeth, there's the fact that the true heir to the throne is actually missing. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a lot of the comedies, there's actually kind of a question of sadness that, Mm. that is in the background tainting all of the happiness. And I wonder if that might be part of the same theme, you know, that there can only be so much resolution Mm -hmm. here in this world, in this world. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good way to look at the end of, of Julius Caesar, which is the play I'm sort of always think about when you think, what's the quintessential Shakespeare play? Maybe because of my own experience with Julius Caesar, which is different than a lot of people's. I think I, I came to Julius Caesar first because I had to teach it. <laughs> I, was, I was teaching a junior high lit class and Julius Caesar was on the curriculum and I had never, I think I might've read it, but I had never studied it. And I, I went to it as an assignment this is a, a piece of, of literature that you have to master so that you can stand up in front of the room and tell all the kids what it's about. Right. And uh, it was such a wonderful experience because I, I read it and I was swept away by its beauty and by the, the kinds of themes that you guys are talking about <laughs> already. And I, I realized a new, a, a new vista on teaching was opened up to me in that process uh, because of Shakespeare and because of the depth and beauty of his work. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the things about Julius Caesar that I love so much is the is the um the humanity as you guys are saying of the protagonist who is frankly overwhelmed by the size of the thing he's reaching for and it's too big for him and once he gets it in his hands it destroys him hmm. because he wasn't supposed to be reaching for that. Right. Anyway, you know, and I I identify with that. Uh, maybe in the same way Missy, that you identify with Lear's lack of sight. Mm -hmm. I identify with Brutus reaching too far Mm -hmm. and getting the thing he was after and realizing, oh no, I'm actually part of the problem here. Mm -hmm. I'm not any sort of solution. I am no arbiter worthy of the name. But is actually inspired by the 
the spirit of Caesar, right? Yeah. In fact, he says in, in Act 1, he says, let us be sacrificers, not butchers, Caius. We all stand up against the spirit of Caesar. And in the spirit of men, there is no blood. And so what he's saying is, in order to, to rid Rome of this tyranny, let's, let's strike a blow against the spirit of the age, which is tyranny. And of course, he says in his, in his sermon where he's trying to justify his actions to the mob, uh, he says, remember, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. And we find in the end that he realizes that he has committed a tyrannical act in killing Caesar, and he has become the tyrant that he's trying to rid Rome of. Mm -hmm. And so he reserves that dagger, runs on his sword, and says in that great last line, Caesar, now be still. I killed not thee with half so good a will. Mm -hmm. And he's just basically overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the fact that he reached too far, became the enemy that he was trying to protect Rome against, and so came to that kind of peace in the end that maybe, as Emily suggests, is what we can hope for in this world. So I guess maybe my answer to the question, what literary excellence would I uh, love Shakespeare for the most? It's probably something along the lines of what you guys have been saying with that semi-political twinge to it, I, I suppose. Just how relatable the characters are. Yeah, that's it. It's how human they are. Yeah. I found a beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis, actually. He was discussing the same idea of why are Shakespeare's plays so important? What is it about the characters that's so gripping? And he once told someone that he would travel the world to meet a Shakespeare character face to face. He would travel across the world just to have a conversation with one. But he said, I wouldn't have to cross the room to meet Hamlet because he is where I am. Mm -hmm. So... C.S. Lewis's favorite character was Hamlet, and he identified with him the most. But I think for the same reason that we've been discussing, that mm -hmm. just the fatal flaw in that man reached out to Lewis to himself. Lewis. And yeah. He felt like he was him. He saw himself in Hamlet. Yeah. And, you know, you can kind of see that. We all do. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you list the favorite lines from Shakespearean plays, they all have in it that self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yes. That, you know, that sympathetic detail that... Mm -hmm helps us, that draws us because we see ourselves in them. Yes. Like, um, um, he loved not little, but too much. Right. We're speaking of Othello, right? The man who loved not, mm -hmm. not little, but too much. How many of us have fallen into that trap, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and over and over again, we find ourselves in the seat of, of um, well, in the place, ugh, my words are failing me today. We find mm -hmm. ourselves in a situation where we basically need mercy, mm -hmm. We cannot survive without mercy. I think about um, the merchant of Venice mm -hmm. and Portia giving her speech before the judge. When she talks about mercy, she says, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Mm. He, he understands mercy. Yeah. He, he sees our need for mercy. Mm -hmm. And that, he, he seems to say that that... That is the grandeur, the grandeur of man. part of man, mm -hmm. right? The, the ability to see self, reach for mercy, and simultaneously extend it to his neighbor. Mm -hmm. 
who needs it too. And the result is um, fellowship, relationship, wow. harmony yeah. in the peace. community. Peace. Yeah. Peace in the community. The section you just read from, what play was it from? It's from The Merchant of Venice. From The Merchant of Venice, right. Uh, Brings up a question that I wanted to ask the three of you because you're you're Shakespeare buffs and readers all. Um, And it has to do with the language of Elizabethan England. Hmm. And I read recently on a a website uh, a quote along the lines of, Shakespeare is not English. It is completely incomprehensible to the modern reader, and it has nothing in common with him contextually or linguistically anymore. Wow. And a reader for a new century should move on to something more relevant. And the comment was primarily a comment about Elizabethan English. And oh my I, goodness. <laughs> I put it to you guys. I, I put it to you guys so that we can... I, I just want to talk about it because I've, I personally think that Elizabethan English is beautiful and it's worth the time it takes to sort of get your ear tuned to the rhythms and to Shakespeare's vocabulary. And I think it's worth it because I think it's mellifluous and gorgeous in the other, <laughs> coming out the other end of that process. Yeah. What would you guys say to someone who said, um, you know, this is almost a, a foreign language and I don't know if it's worth the time to figure out how to read it? Well, fair enough. It's almost a foreign language. Okay. I hear that. It requires something of you. Almost not worth the time to learn to read it. Now, I can't go with you there. It's just, and I want to disagree with the semantics of that because I wouldn't ever want to tell a student that it's a foreign language because actually it's the root of our own language and mm-hmm. it's what gives depth and meaning to the English language. I, I used to think that English was boring hearing French or mm-hmm. or any other language. You think it's so beautiful and interesting, but encountering Shakespeare changed my mind mm-hmm. because the English language is actually extraordinarily flexible. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. I agree with you about that. I think what they probably mean is that, you know, the language, the English language continues to grow yes. and change. It's language is a, a living thing right. because living people speak it. Right. So we coin new words. Um, some words go out of usage. Uh, they're archaic. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they mean when they say this isn't English anymore. What they mean is this isn't how we talk today. Right. And fair enough. We right. can argue about whether or not we should. And I think I'd side with you, Emily, on that one. But um, the thing that they're missing is this idea. I think the reason that they would dismiss Shakespeare in that way is because they don't understand the fundamental principle that links us to him. And that is the nature that we all share. If you understand man's nature to be a constant, then... Reading Shakespeare, or frankly, anyone else who wrote ages and ages ago, whose language is now what we would consider archaic, Mm -hmm. um, becomes worth the project because they are men who have encountered the eternal things, who have weighed in about that in their own experience through fiction, through nonfiction, what have you, but they Mm -hmm. have weighed in about the eternal things, the eternal questions of man, and they have something to say to us and to decide not to avail ourselves of the wisdom that's present in the thing that they that they the things that they have written is to essentially cut the legs out from underneath us. Right, it's foolhardy to to. Why would you do that? Well, you're but you're talking. But if I could just interrupt for just a second, you're still talking about the ideas that Shakespeare right. is trying to communicate. I was talking about the words he uses, and so what I wanted to do is have a linguistic 
aspect to this conversation. Sure, Shakespeare's talking about the universal finitude of man, but man, there's shorter words you can use to describe it, and you could probably communicate the idea a lot more efficiently to a student today. I think it's kind of funny, though, because a lot of the words that are shorter and efficient and used a lot today, Shakespeare actually coined. Like, he actually, if we're talking linguistically, he's responsible for a lot of the language that we do use today. (laughs) He just made it up off the top of his head. (laughs) I think we got to, you know, take our hats off to him and put in the time to understand the mind that's responsible for a lot of our language today. I agree. I agree. And also, the the distinction I made with you, Missy, a second ago was a bit of a, a charade because... I actually would argue that the words you use to express an idea are inseparable at some level from the idea itself. Yeah, I think so too. And if you don't say it exactly the way Shakespeare said it, you're not saying the same thing. Right. There's an important sense in which when, right. when Brutus says um, at the end of Julius Caesar, I killed not thee with half so good a will, that's the only way to say that. Mm-hmm. The more you study well, Shakespeare, the more you see that his phrases are so on purpose and yeah, they can yeah. be read a couple different ways. And he means all three of those right, ways. Right. It's the only way to say that. Thing. Right. And historically speaking, he was writing at the perfect time for his own skill because the English language was in a really fluid mm-hmm. place. Uh, it was still being influenced by other languages and there was no... Um, standard of spelling Mm -hmm. and so often even the spellings of his words are meaningful wow um yeah because there was no i mean he kind of had that room to play with it and so yes it's it's challenging and it takes a little bit of work but it's so worth it yeah so rewarding why why is there a does this conversation lead on to a discussion of why people don't write five-act plays in blank verse unrhymed iambic pentameter (laughs) anymore (laughs) I mean, that it's. I wonder if what you said a minute ago about the English language being at a particular place when Shakespeare lived, has that moment come and gone? I mean, I don't know of many works mm. of literature being composed in that genre, in that form anymore. Did Shakespeare just do it so well it could never be equaled? Or did the language move on past it? What do you guys think about that? You know, just as the language grows and changes, there's invention always going on. Right. And the short story has become more of a means for communication yeah. than the five act play. Right. The five form act plays were, yeah, sometimes. the form changes and the, the, the language itself changes a bit, mm-hmm. but the constant underneath it is the idea. Right. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss what you're saying about the language as well. I, I like very much what you said, Emily, about our own language that we use today being so rooted in Shakespeare's, um, use of the language, the 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 way that he coined words and expressions and things like that. I guess what I'd say is that both his words, his language, and his ideas, the ideas he was trafficking in, um, were such a contribution to mankind, you know, not just to his own time, but to the eternal argument. Yeah. And to decide not to avail yourself of that is, you know, I think of T.S. Eliot's tradition in the individual talent, this, this short essay that he wrote about the very thing that we're discussing, whether or not we should avail ourselves of the things of the past or say that was yesterday, this is today mm-hmm. and let's look ahead and we're going to invent and we're going to be different and all that sort of thing. He really caused me in that essay to look at the situation and say, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, right. And if we were to hop off, we wouldn't be able to see as far. I like what you're saying. What you're saying is we need to go read Shakespeare and we need to learn Elizabethan English because 
Shakespeare is one of the giants that we need to learn from. And he happened to speak in Elizabethan English. And since he's not speaking 21st century slang, we need to go read Elizabethan English for the the sake of Shakespeare. Well, he's a giant, not just philosophically speaking. Right. Right. Not just in terms of being a playwright, but also his use of the language, um, his poetry, all of these things. You know, he was one of the greats, one of the giants in humanity that wrote things down for us to preserve it so that we can climb up there on his shoulders and see ourselves, one another, the world, the questions. He gave us a, such a beautiful vantage yes. of life yes. and humanity. Why wouldn't we take advantage of that? Right. Well, and practically speaking, I remember struggling to understand the text. Like I hated it in high school. I, no one was helping me understand it. It was mm-hmm. gibberish and not worth my time. Mm-hmm. I love Shakespeare now, and I had to make that turnaround, and I know it's possible. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Would you say so. then that, that Shakespeare's not for younger readers at all? Like, do you need to be old enough to tackle the Elizabethan language in order to read it, or can we give it to, can we give it to junior high kids? I was going to ask Emily that question, because Emily, you've mentioned your students a time or two already in this discussion, so let's put that question to you. What do you, how would you handle that with young readers? Hmm. Well, I think everyone develops at their own pace and the stories I think are wonderful and should be told um, to introduce kids to the, you know, maybe give them an introduction to this kind of stories they'll encounter. But when it comes to the language, I mean, I think you should try, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't ever want to force a kid who absolutely hates it to, um, to do it. You know, I would, I, I guess it's a, a balance, right? Like yeah. you want to teach them to do it, but I don't want to force it on them in a way that's going to make them hate it. My introduction to Shakespeare was, um, was with my mother. My mother was a, an English lit teacher. She taught high school English and she began to tell me the stories of Shakespeare, um, just in summary fashion. And the stories of Shakespeare read like they read like soap operas like movies. or movies. Yeah. I wasn't intimidated because my mom was just telling me stories. And before too long, I got a copy of Lamb's Tales and I began to read other summaries. The Lamb's Tales themselves are a bit antiquated now. The language has changed since the Lambs wrote those summaries. It was 150 um, years ago. Maybe that's a project we should take up and start writing some more summaries. Yeah, no kidding. But, um, but a summary version is a great way to bring kids into Shakespeare, because then they're not struggling to understand the story and the language simultaneously. That's a great thought. And the other thing that I always love to suggest for young students to get them, give them a taste for Shakespeare is to have Shakespeare performed for them and, Mm -hmm. and pronounced, read out loud, pronounced by people whose profession it is to understand Mm -hmm. Shakespeare and speak it fluently. Which isn't intonation. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes that you have to go far and wide in order to find that. I mean, I've even found some movie versions, uh, a recent version of Romeo and Juliet <laughs> oh did my a very goodness. poor job of that. I actually saw on a movie, Juliet saying, where are you, Wherefore Romeo? art thou, Romeo, with exact to- intonation of where are you, Romeo? Are, I can't see go. in this darkness. Uh, oh my gosh. It was pretty horrifying. And I thought, oh my gosh, I they think Shakespeare understand. might in fact be dead. <laughs> So it is important to find one where, where people actually know what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, understanding. I think if you can bring your kids into an understanding of what they're reading, they'll be so caught up in the drama that they'll grow to love it. And that 
sometimes requires you getting down there in the dust with them and doing the hard work of translating. Yeah, you know, I had a great experience. In fact, my very first experience with Shakespeare of any kind was in the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I was Macbeth in the school play, mm -hmm. and I had to memorize the Is This a Dagger I See Before Me speech, and a couple of other speeches, too, actually. Can you still do it? Um, I, I don't know. That, <laughs> thank on, you for on. mentioning Wait, that. I'd love to hear it. Live on a podcast. <laughs> is this a dagger? I, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but anyway, the... um. Fourth grade was, uh, you would call that pretty early. That's pretty young, but that Shakespeare. is when we, fourth or fifth grade is when we start teaching it in Center for Life. Well, I never forgot the story. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for that wonderful story. And the the uh, lessons about human frailty that we've been talking about this hour have always been there because of that early experience. Not just with the language, but as you say, Missy, with those great ideas mm. that you are know, inextricably wound up with them, I think. One of my daughters came to me having just read Macbeth this last year in college. And she said, I know I read this when I was a kid, but I didn't get any of that. Right. I didn't get any of that. And my thought was, well, does that mean that it was a wasted experience, her reading that the first time? And no, of course not. What no. it means is it was an introduction. And this is something that we can go back to again and again. It's rich and it rewards rereading, mm -hmm. which is why it's a classic. Yeah, of course. You know, so when they read it at fourth, fifth, sixth grade, what have you, they're being introduced to something that they're not going to understand in its totality. And good books, the very best books, we don't understand in their totality the first time through. Any more than we understand human life generally, right? Really, that's why they, that's why they cause us to grow, is yeah. they, they force us to reach, right? Yeah. They stretch us beyond what's comfortable. And Shakespeare always does that. Let me uh, bring this conversation to a close by asking each of you, to imagine an adult newcomer to the bard rather than a young student, mm -hmm. maybe an adult listening to the podcast who wants to get involved in Shakespeare, who maybe whose interest is piqued by this discussion, who knows that, you know, I really should have a little grasp on Shakespeare. After all, I speak English too. Where would you recommend they start and why? What should be the first thing by Shakespeare that you read to get you going? Emily, why don't you go first? Well, I guess I would suggest starting with King Lear and then immediately following that up with The Tempest. Yeah. And Why do you say that? Noticing, well, because they're so, it, it's almost like King Lear is the problem and The Tempest is the answer. Yeah, I was going to say that too. <laughs> and I think that holds true over his entire body of work. I think if you can, if you can see the elderly King Lear struggling and, and get an idea of what he's struggling with and then see the elderly Prospero and what he struggles with and the conclusion that he comes to. If you can get those two ideas under your belt, you'll be equipped to tackle the rest of Shakespeare. Yeah. It's kind of like Shakespeare's worldview in two plays. Really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. You guys must've had the same professor. Yeah. Not, <laughs> it's, it's hard. This is a hard question because are we talking about like a story that's easy to step into? Because King Lear would be a hard one to just step into if what you're coming for is plot. Mm -hmm. Because it is devastating. It is. And if you think that that's all that Shakespeare writes about, you might be wary of him ever afterward because it really is Boy, an emotional experience. Yeah. But if you're coming for to understand Shakespeare's worldview and, you know, to get a taste of the real Shakespeare, then that is such a good one to start with. Mm. King Lear. Mm-hmm. As long as you follow it up with The Tempest. As is long that as you... you don't stop there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Missy, would you have said something similar? I don't know. I mean, when you asked that question, I, I thought of so many different plays. Yes, but you can't list them all. You have to choose one. That's part of I the know. exercise. I understand. I understand. You know what? Right now, for an adult reading Shakespeare for the first time, I'd say read Julius Caesar uh, because we're in a political season right now. And I think that this is timely. Yes. I was actually going to say that too. That was going to be hmm. my answer. I suggest Julius Caesar for two reasons. Number one, it's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. And so accessible. it's accessible and historical. If you know anything about Roman history, you can follow the story with no trouble. Right. And, and the, the, the plot is very, it's, it's a lot like a movie and it's, it's right. very, it's easy to follow. It's shot and then, through with some of his greatest quotes. It's too. shot through with wonderful quotes. You'll, you'll come across a dozen lines that you go, Oh, that was from Shakespeare. Right. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the fault in our stars as a matter of fact is the one that jumps immediately <laughs> to mind. Right. But the other thing is that it's relevant to a political season. The spirit of the age, which is tyranny, is all through Julius Caesar and these protagonists fight against it and find it in themselves. This whole idea that the tyrant in the story is not the leader that bears the palm. It's the mob that puts him on the throne Mm -hmm. is just as much a tyrant as the leader is. And, it is uh, the spirit of the it age. It is the spirit of the age. That's Tyranny. the problem. And that would be really fun, I think, for a new Shakespeare reader to consider here in this uh, in American this political season. season. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Well, uh, it's hard to just pick one of Shakespeare's plays to get started with, but you have to start somewhere. And if you've never read Shakespeare before, let the four of us encourage you that you could do little better with your reading life <laughs> than to start now. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you guys for being with us. Thank you guys for your contributions about Shakespeare, for your experience and for your enthusiasm for the topic. Uh, If those of you who are listening are inspired to go pick up a play, we're glad of it and hope that you enjoy it as much as we have. In the meantime, go to iTunes and rate the podcast if you would. We would appreciate that. You can also go by our website, centerforlit.com, and check out the other resources we have available for readers of every stripe, including the Pelican Society, a members-only access site for all things literary. Come on by and check it out if you have a mind to. And until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>